For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. G'day and welcome to Australiana from The Spectator Australia. I'm Will Kingston. My guest today very nearly never made it to this interview. His parents married in Lebanon when his father was 20 and his mother nearly 16. They quickly had three children and he came along 10 years after that. His mother was dead set on getting an abortion, only to change her mind quite literally at the top of the stairs of the clinic. As a way of reminding him that he owed her his life, and euphemistically, I might add, how close he had come to being fish food. It was our good fortune that Gadsad's mother turned around that day. He is one of the world's most important public intellectuals and surely its most entertaining. He has written wonderfully well on a staggering array of subjects, but his latest book is a how-to guide on a topic he is particularly well-versed, happiness. Gad, welcome to Australiana. Oh, thank you so much for that lovely introduction. Interestingly, uh, in my recent visit to Budapest, where I was talking about you know the importance of family, I exactly recounted that story that you used in the introduction to point to the fact that when it comes to fertility and reproductive choices, boy, am I lucky to have made it out of my mother's <laughs> mind. You've spoken in the past about how your childhood informed your worldview and informed how you think about happiness today. Take us back to those early years in Lebanon and how that has informed how you think about happiness, how you think about, about your life today. Sure, yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, so I was born uh, in Lebanon, and I grew up there for the first 11 years of my life. Now, there were some difficulties in growing up in Lebanon and that we are uh, Lebanese Jews, so we were part of the last small minority of Jews that had steadfastly refused to leave Lebanon because we were well entrenched within Lebanese society. Then when the civil war broke out, and it's a civil war by which all brutal civil wars are judged against because it was just astonishingly brutal, which often happens when you have tribal identities rooted in, in religion. And so uh, we had to leave the first year of the Lebanese civil war, and luckily we were able to emigrate to Canada. Now, and it certainly informs my existential view on life in that having gone through the horrors of my childhood in Lebanon, I can always contextualize anything that is bringing me down on a given day in light of that background. So if I'm whining to myself about how hectic and pressured life I lead because lovely people such as yourself wish to grant me their platform to discuss ideas, I will usually stop myself and say, are you truly whining about the fact that people want to talk to you? Remember that you escaped the Lebanese civil war. And so using that very tragic childhood stressor allows me to always contextualize the daily 
difficulties that we all face in light of that existential miracle that I was able to escape from. So in that sense, if anything, the childhood tragedy allowed me to appreciate life that much more. Is that something that you do very consciously or do you think that's a, it's a more subconscious thing? I mean, it's a bit of both. I think it, it, it certainly is operating in the back of my mind without my being conscious of it, but I do willfully often stop myself. Let's say I'm, you know, I feel my breathing is too shallow because I'm stressed about, you know, the, the looming schedule that I'm facing. Then I'll, I'll stop and say, you know, wait a minute. I really am fortunate to be where I am. So it's a bit of both. Sometimes it's working, it's operating in the background. And sometimes I'm willfully considering the trajectory of my life so that I can contextualize my current, you know, annoyances in light of the, the stuff that I faced in the past. It's dangerous to compare historical eras, particularly after you say something like that and, and you have to compare it to periods of great hardship and war. That being said, it does feel like we are in in a lull in Western society, deaths of despair at historically high levels, antidepressant uses through the roof, woke culture teaches us to be guilty about pretty much everything. Are we historically unhappy in the West today? And if so, why? So empirically, and I, I cite this in, in my current book, empirically, if you look at, say, US longitudinal happiness data, men's score on happiness has not decreased, but women's score has precipitously decreased over the past 30, 40 years. Now, I argue in the book speculatively, although I think it's quite a plausible explanation, that part of the drop in happiness, at least for women, is, and, and here I link it to my previous book, The Parasitic Mind, because there are some idea pathogens that have proliferated that are uniquely detrimental to women's happiness. So for example, in the case of radical feminism, when you're telling women, look, you are indistinguishable from men, and therefore any, any pathway to happiness that a man might pursue is one that you could equally pursue on many things that is perfectly true. But say in terms of uh, your sexual behavior, that which might be within the fantasy of men may not be that which is ideal for women. So, you know, hey, ladies, burn your proverbial bras and go and have an endless string of meaningless one-night stands, while women woke up and said, well, actually, that doesn't really make me fulfilled. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that women are not interested in sexual variety and so on, but it is certainly true that evolutionarily speaking, when it comes to mating behavior, there are many dimensions on which men and women defer for very clear evolutionary reasons. And so so I don't think we can generally say existentially everyone in the West is inherently unhappier today than they were 30 years ago. But I, I can add an, one quick other dimension, if I may. I talk in the book about the fact that there's a lot of research that shows that conservatives are on average happier than progressive slash liberals, and because you mentioned the, the woke dimension. And I offer, uh, again, a speculative argument as to why that uh, might be the case. Conservatives, by the very nature of the word conserve, they do wake up existentially thinking that there are things that are worthy of conserving, certain deontological principles that are worthy of conserving. On the other hand, the progressive wakes up existentially angry because the current world is a bad world and just around the corner there is unicornia, which if only we can eradicate the current sexist, racist, misogynistic, transphobic status quo, we'll get to nirvana. And so I think that there is something to be said about how political orientation might result in different views on happiness. 
That's really interesting. I want to go back to that. But first, I want to dive a little deeper on the lens of gender and particularly around around women. So you are very good friends with Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson has been called up in the past for making the seemingly very obvious point that men and women are different biologically, psychologically, and that can therefore lead to different outcomes statistically. It feels like this debate has now got very, very polarised and silly. And as you can see from what you've said, the outcome is that women aren't happy. Many women aren't happy. How do we have this debate better around feminism without resorting to these extremes on both sides? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So one of the things that I talk about in the previous book, in The Parasitic Mind, is that all of these idea pathogens, and again, for the benefit of our listeners who may not be familiar with uh, my previous book, I argue that in the same way that human beings on other animals could be parasitized by actual physical brain worms, humans can be parasitized by another class of brain worms. These are, I call them ideological brain worms or, you know, idea pathogens. So postmodernism is such an idea pathogen, radical feminism, social constructivism. Uh, so there are, there's a slew of these idea pathogens that lead us down the abyss of infinite lunacy. But then the question, and I'll, I'll come in a second to your gender question. The, the issue becomes, why do these idea pathogens seem so intoxicating to so many people that they are readily willing to be parasitized by these? And so when you come now to the, the, the feminist issue and how people view this, the sex differences, equity feminism was a great idea. Equity feminism basically says that there shouldn't be any institutional or legal reason why men and women should not be treated equally under the law. And I think most reasonable people would say, yeah, of course, sign me up. I'm an equity feminist. The problem arises with many of these idea pathogens is that they start off with a noble goal. And in the service of that noble goal, if they need to murder and rape truth, then so be it. And so then radical feminists come along and say, well, if we really wish to eradicate this sexist patriarchal status quo, then we need to promulgate a message that men and women are indistinguishable from each other. Well, that can't make sense, right? I can walk and chew gum at the same time. I could be all in favor of the idea that men and women should be treated equally under the law, whilst also recognizing that we are a sexually dimorphic species. There are evolved innate sex differences that define our species. And to negate that means you're simply negating common sense and reality. And that's why that opens the door then to the fact of the current latest addition to the Supreme U.S. Supreme Court when asked during her confirmation hearing, what is a woman? And she answers, well, I mean, how I can't answer that. I'm not a biologist. Well, that is so insane that it even beats the legendary God sad satire, right? If, if a sitting U.S. Supreme Court judge does not have the epistemological confidence to state what a woman is, we're in trouble. And so this is this is what happens when you have a bunch of idea pathogens that completely hijack our neuronal circuitry. Well, for the logical listeners out there, I guess the next question is, how do you respond to those sorts of idea pathogens? How can you respond in a way, is there any form of persuasion where you can get people who are inflicted by that sort of idea pathogen to see sense? Or unfortunately, is it so deeply rooted that they're too far gone? Yeah, no, fantastic question. So here, if you'll forgive me, it's going to be a long technical answer, but hopefully that will prove informative. And the answer to your question relies on at least my interlocutor 
right? The person I'm trying to convince, here's the mind vaccine against your parasitic ideas. As long as they don't go, la, 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 I don't want to hear it. So as long as they are honest enough to at least grant me the courtesy to vaccinate them against the mind parasite, then I think we're good to go. So what is the mind vaccine against these parasitic ideas? So in chapter seven of the previous book in the parasitic mind, the chapter is titled how to seek truth. I basically argue that the way you do that is through the building of nomological networks of cumulative evidence. So that's a mouthful. So let me break it down. So let's suppose I want to convince you that toy preferences have a sex specificity not due to social construction, but due to very clear universal biological reasons. In other words, boys prefer certain toys, girls prefer certain other toys, and that's not because mommy and daddy are sexist patriarchal pigs, which is literally the argument that typically is promulgated by social scientists. The reason why we have these gender roles is because Johnny's taught to play aggressively with the truck and Linda is taught to play uh, gently and in a nurturing way with the pink doll. And that starts the trajectory of gender roles. So nothing could be further from the truth. So now I come along and I want to vaccinate you against that level of imbecility. How would I go about doing that? Well, so how do we build a network of cumulative evidence? Okay, and so I'm, I'm not going to build the whole network, but I'm going to give you enough lines of distinct evidence so that the epistemological vaccine becomes clear. So, okay, I can go to developmental psychology and demonstrate to you that children who are too young to be socialized, in other words, by definition, they haven't yet reached the cognitive developmental stage to be socialized into toy preferences, already exhibit those sex-specific toy preferences. So already that serves as a death nail to, to the social constructivist argument, but I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to drown you in a tsunami of evidence. Okay, the next piece of evidence in my network might be from comparative psychology. Comparative psychology refers to demonstrating that a phenomenon holds true across species. Hence, the comparative refers to comparisons across species. So I can show you that vervet monkeys, rhesus monkeys, and chimpanzees, their infants exhibit the exact same sex-specific toy preferences as human infants. Well, now it's seeming to be quite unlikely that mama and papa vervet monkey parents are also under the purview of the patriarchy. All right, so that, that already... It's a mic drop, but I'm not going to stop there. I can get you data from across cultures because you might say, oh, but that's just a Western standard. Well, okay, how about I find you cultures in North Africa and sub-Saharan nomadic cultures that have nothing to do with Western culture where they have the exact same sex-specific toy preferences? Well, then you might come to me and say, oh yeah, but Dr. Saad, but that's all contemporary. What about in the past? Well, I could get you data from ancient Greece and ancient Rome, where on funerary monuments, on mausoleums, children are depicted playing with the exact same sex-specific toys as we have today. I'll do one more, although there's many more such evidence. How about I get you data from pediatric endocrinology, whereby little girls who suffer from congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is an endocrinological disorder that masculinizes little girls' morphological features and preferences and behavioral patterns. Well, little girls who suffer from this endocrinological disorder have a complete reversal of their toy preferences. Their toy preferences are akin to those of boys. Well, look at how many lines of evidence. I got you data from across animals, from across cultures, from across species, across many methodologies and disciplines, all of which 
triangulate to proving the veracity of my position. So how do I vaccinate you against stupidity? I build you that network and hopefully I turn you, I flip you. And so that's why I said that the only way for me to be able to implement that strategy is as long as you don't go la la la. If, if you're not willing to hear how I'm building the nomological network, then, then you're irredeemable. There's no way for me to reach you. But as long as there is a little light of intellectual honesty in you, I'll flip you. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why it's quite difficult for people to cancel me because I've built all of my nomological networks. So before I take a position very confidently, oftentimes in a sarcastic style and larger than lifestyle, that's because I have the confidence of having built the nomological network prior to engaging you or engaging all of social media. So good luck to you if you try to come after me to cancel me because I'm going to literally drown you in a sea of evidence. So I think now... The, the only difficulty in what I'm proposing is that it takes effort to build those networks. Most people are cognitive misers. Therefore, they don't have the proclivity or the ability to build those networks. But that's why there are people like me who are willing to be in the public eye and engage in these debates. And one last point, and I'll cede the floor back to you. What these nomological networks of cumulative evidence also allow me to do is it allows me to have the epistemic humility of knowing what I know and knowing what I don't know. So if you were to ask me, well, hey, what's the downstream effect so far of the legalization of marijuana in Canada? Then I would say, hey, that's a great question, but unfortunately, it's above my pay grade, meaning that I haven't built the nomological network for me to be able to convincingly offer you an answer. And therefore, I'd say, I don't know. And so knowing what I know and knowing what I don't know allows me to avoid ever having you know, people cancel me because my positions are really well-founded. Yes, I'm, I'm glad that we are ideologically aligned because they're not a series of positions I particularly want to argue against. <laughs> what I, uh, for me, what I reflect on when I listen to you there is how you pull from so many different disciplines. And you, met, you mentioned this, and this is something you bring up in the book. You mentioned the importance of being a polymath, the importance of drawing from those different disciplines, and the importance of that in the context of happiness. Can you expand on that for me? Right. So think about, so that I discuss it in the chapter where I talk about variety as the, as, a spice, as the spice of life, as the saying goes. And so I explain variety seeking in many different domains, but the one that I spend the most time on is exactly the one that you mentioned, being a polymath, being an intellectual variety seeker. Look, let's bring it back to me personally. There are an enormous number of opportunities that I've been able to live because I am a polymath, meaning that I'm, I'm not someone who is a stay-in-your-lane professor that only speaks about a very hyper-specialized topic and only about that, and I never deviate. Now, that might make me interesting for a very, very minute audience that shares my research interests, but then the second that I were to step out of that hyper-specialization, I would have nothing to say and nothing of importance to say. On the other hand, if I'm a broad thinker, if I'm a synthetic thinker, if I am someone who seeks consilience, which means unity of knowledge, then I'm able to traverse many intellectual ecosystems, not only enrich the people who reside in those ecosystems, but be enriched by them. And so at the end of the day, I look back and say, my God, I was so 
happy and enriched to have gone to Hungary to speak at the Family Demographic Summit because I met so many interesting and fascinating people. And that has made me feel a lot more enriched than had I only spoken to fellow professors who are interested in the very, very narrow specific research areas that I might be interested in. And so I think the world is such a vast, exciting place. You could always order the same meal at your favorite restaurant, but boy, are you losing on all kinds of other great meals that you might benefit in trying. And so I think an open mind, a polymathic mind can only lead to greater enrichment. And certainly at the end of your life, when you look back, you could say, I went to Jamaica a hundred times because I love Jamaica. That's great. Or I visited 100 countries. In almost all cases, I would like to think that the latter is a greater pathway to happiness. You quote Bertrand Russell in this chapter, and Bertrand Russell said that, let me get this right, the secret to happiness is let your interests be as wide as possible. Now, Gab, you're obviously a, a naturally curious person. My question would be, can curiosity be cultivated or is it an innate characteristic? Great question. And it exactly speaks to the proverbial nature versus nurture debate. And so let me answer that academically or philosophically first in a general way, and then I'll, I'll link it to the specific curiosity angle. On most f- human phenomena, we are an inextricable mix of nature and nurture. And here I like to use what's what I call the cake metaphor. If you take the ingredients that you use to make a cake, to bake a cake, here are the eggs, here's the sugar, here's the butter, here's the flour, you're able to isolate them prior to baking the cake. Now I'm going to bake the cake. If I tell you, please point to the sugar, please point to the eggs, you're unable to. It's an inextricable mix. So for most human phenomena, we are really a melange of these two things. Now it might vary how much is due to heredity, how much is due to environment, but it is a bit of both, okay? Now when it comes, by the way, to happiness, and then I'll come to the curiosity question, about 50% of individual differences in happiness scores come from our genes, meaning that about 50% of what makes me sunny and you less sunny, I'm saying that hypothetically, I don't literally mean it that I'm sunny, is just because I was born with a sunny disposition because of the random combination of my genes. But the good news is that that leaves still 50% up for grabs. That means that half of our differences in happiness scores come from the willful decisions and mindsets that we adopt, okay? So now when it comes to curiosity, I think there's definitely innate differences in individual drives to curiosity, probably best captured by one of the big five personality traits, openness, right? So openness to the world, openness to meeting new people, openness to navigating new intellectual landscapes, and hence being intellectually curious is captured by that trait. But to your point, there are ways that we can improve willfully our curiosity drive. So let me take a personal example. I'm a voracious reader, but much more so in nonfiction. And I'm willfully aware that, I mean, compared to the average person, I've probably read even you know more, more than the average person in fiction, but I think I'm willfully inadequate in my fiction reading. So if you were to point me to the 100 greatest novels ever written, I would be ashamed to say how many of those 100 that I've read. So I'm willfully aware of that. I'm willfully aware that I am 
lacking in the capacity to enrich myself by not having consumed all these great literary works. And so I try to the best of my ability, given my time constraints, to say, okay, every six months, I'm going to at least try to get through one of them or something. So so yes, there is individual innate differences in our curiosity pension, but that does not stop us from willfully trying to improve irrespective of where we originally started from. I want to get into a couple of the key drivers of happiness that you identify in the book. But before we do, there's a couple of, I guess, meta questions that I have. The first is around religion. So religious observance has declined across the West over the last half a century. Do we need organized religion to be happy? Well, so certainly the research shows, as I cite in the book, that there is a moderate effect, positive correlation between happiness and religiosity. Now, I can offer a very earthly, non-supernatural set of reasons as to why that would hold true. So being religious, all other things equal, offers me greater communality. It offers me a greater sense of belongingness within a tightly defined group. Those are desires and needs that we all have. But the good news is that I am able to find those or cater to those needs, not solely through religion, but for most people, it's a natural way to organize their lives around these, you know, religious affiliational groups. And so on a abstract philosophical level, no, it's, I don't strictly need religion to cater to those needs, but I recognize, even as someone, while I am very much rooted in my Jewish identity, I'm not a very religious person, I recognize that the default value of humans is to be believers. Because, and and here, I mean, I think the, the explanation is, I mean, it's both very profound and I think very obvious. We are the only animal that we know of that has the ability to recognize that they are on a continual death sentence, meaning we are aware of our mortality. Now, when I have high cholesterol, I go see my physician and he or she says, okay, let's put you on some statins to reduce your LDL score. Unfortunately, there is no pill to take for the looming death that awaits us. And well, wait a second, there is a looming pill, or I mean, there is a pill for the looming death. It's called your favorite religious narrative. Please believe in my religious narrative and I can assure you, you will be granted eternal life. And so I think just that is such a powerful selling point that it becomes very, very difficult for people to be non-believers. The other thing I would say is that there are so many cruel vagaries that happen in life that are otherwise existentially difficult to bear that, boy, it is nice to have the, well, God works in mysterious ways to always serve as an explanatory mechanism for why little Timmy, who's only four years old and is the definition of innocence, why he was stricken with leukemia and died. Well, that's because God wants to call his angels to be closest to him. So I understand the functional value of religion and Once you do, and as an evolutionist I do, then it becomes very easy to understand why there would be a positive correlation between religion and happiness. Yeah, that does make sense. And I think it was very powerful in the book where you say, notwithstanding all of that, you can find spirituality in its broadest sense in a variety of other ways. This is a conversation we've had with Peter Boghossian, Constant Kisson, Tom Holland in, in recent weeks. 
everyone recognises that the decline of organised religion has led to a vacuum, particularly around community, around that sense of purpose. And I think that's why that part of the book really resonated with me, because I think this is something we're not talking about enough. With that vacuum there, and I think that actually creates a happiness vacuum, what are ways in which people who can't bring themselves to believe in a deity, how are they filling that vacuum, both in terms of a moral framework and a sense of, of purpose? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Look, uh, so I wake up every day with a gleeful anticipation for the looming day, right? Uh, now I'm going to speak to Will. Later, I'm going to hold a Zoom meeting with really bright, inquisitive students. Then later, I might think about the book prospectus for my next book. And so there are an endless number of ways by which the magisterial nature of life manifests itself. It might also be serendipitous stuff. A fan comes up to me who recognizes me, and then we get caught up in a incredibly surprising 20-minute profound conversation where I just connected with this completely random person, and I walk away feeling really enriched and invigorated by it. So I think there are ways by which we can fill that gap by recognizing the just the the, the miracle of life, right? So, and yesterday I was on another show where I was asked, okay, leave us with some profound, happy, you know, wisdom at the end, you know, at the end of the show. And so let me mention it here using a statistical argument. So women are born with roughly one to 2 million ova, you know, at birth. And then, but only about 400 ova are fertilizable, meaning that from the onset of menarche, which is the, the onset of a girl's menstrual cycle to menopause, there's about 400 cycles, okay? So remember that number, 400. Now, in a single ejaculation of a man, there's, I mean, it varies across men, but the average is about 250 million spermatozoa. So for you and I to be sitting and having this conversation, let's just calculate those probabilities. A single egg led to you being born, and 250 million spermatozoa, one of which connected with that ova, ovum that led to you. Never mind the statistical improbability of how your parents met and that they had to have the desire to conceive on that day for you to be born. So the statistical likelihood of any of us, there's about 117 billion people that have ever lived, of having ever survived, or not survived, but existed, is just astronomically small. Boy, what could be more spiritual than the statistical argument I just gave? So yes, we wake up certain days and we're pissed and we're depressed and we're angry and we had a fight with our colleague. But again, keep that statistical calculation in the back of your mind and then say, thank God or thank Darwin or thank Cosmos that I'm here because the likelihood of me being here is infinitesimally small. Yeah, that is very uplifting with the slight caveat that that show stole my final question. So I'll have to work out another <laughs> final question in the next, next 30 minutes. Uh, that is on the whole a very uplifting point. There are two things that you propose in the book, uncontroversially, that contribute most to happiness. And that is your choice of life partner and your choice of career. When I read this chapter, I reflected on just how seismically both of those realms have changed in a very short historical period. So if we take, take them in turn, you met your wife the old-fashioned way. Increasingly, many, perhaps most, depending on which study you look at, uh, young people meet their future partner through apps. How does that play into the story, if at all? Do you, do you think about that, that change and whether that makes a difference? Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think 
the most fundamental way that it leads to a change is that the stories of how you serendipitously met are somewhat less uplifting and romantic when it's me sift. I, I mean, I've, I've never done it. I guess I'm too old. I don't know if it's right or left or whatever it is uh, when I'm sifting through that because then I'm, I'm engaged in a willful shopping for a mate, right? It doesn't seem quite as magical and mysterious. To contextualize that kind of robotic search or auto- automated search to how I met my wife, maybe I can recount how I met her because it then contextualizes. Okay? okay, thank you. Uh, so here's how my wife and I met, and which then speaks to your question of how things have changed. I was heading off, I headed off to the, to the gym and I was doing some weights and a gentleman passed by and he, you know, made a salutation, said, hey, professor, how you doing? I said, oh, hi, hi, nice to see you, whatever. And so another gentleman whom I'd never met had overheard that salutation, comes up and I looked a lot younger then. So I looked like I was 12 years old, no white hair, no white beard. And so he comes up to me, he says, I, I couldn't help but hear the, the gentleman address you as professor. Are you really a professor? I said, yes. He said, oh, which which field? So I tell him. And then he says, oh, well, I'm the CEO and founder, president of a, it's kind of like a telemarketing media company. And so I've got some funds to have some, in. I'd like to you know, uh, implement a, a in-house executive education program for my executives. Would you be interested in coming, maybe offering, say, six courses, you know, every Saturday you come by, you know, one week we'll do psychology of advertising, psychology of decision-making, consumer psychology, whatever. I said, sure, that sounds great. We, we came to an agreement, we signed a contract. And then on that fateful first lecture, I arrived to the company's headquarters and as the elevator door opens, the person who greets me ends up being my future wife. She says, oh, are you Professor Saad? I said, yes. Let me take you to the room where you'll be delivering your lectures. And then I also tell the story there as relating to that those original interactions of what are some of the cues that I picked up that suggested that she's a definite definite keeper. And so at around maybe the, I think it was maybe the third class, I, I was stricken with a a bad bronchitis. I, I used to be asthmatic. And so whenever I get a cold, it usually migrates to my chest and then I'm you know, sick for the next six weeks. And so I was having a, a difficult time you know, breathing. I was coughing a lot. And so when I called for a break, un, unbeknownst to me, my wife-to-be goes downstairs and comes back up with a hot tea and gives me the hot tea and says, oh, well, I, I hope that this will make you feel better. And so I thought, God damn, this is someone considerate, kind, altruistic. She seems lovely. But of course, I had my professorial hat on. So even though there are no ethical issues, I mean, it's not like in the university setting, but I was very, very professorial, very proper. And then I can't remember, I don't think I mentioned this in the book, but I'll mention it now. So it'll be some exclusive content. Uh, (laughs) she, She was asking me, oh, you know, I'd like to meet you to discuss whatever, some theory that I was covering in the course. And I thought, oh my God, she's she's such an inquisitive person. This is so delightful. And then later she tells me, I didn't give a damn about anything you were saying. I was just trying to, you know, get some extra time with you. So, but all, so just to recap, if that guy doesn't say, hey, professor, how you doing? If another guy doesn't hear it and on and on, 
my wife and I would have never met. So I think it's in that sense, in that romantic, spiritual sense, that doing the robotic search online maybe makes us lose a bit of that magic. Yeah, I, I unfortunately can't help but, but agree with that. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the other question I have around relationships is divorce rates have never been higher. This is an incredibly important decision. We seem to be stuffing it up more and more as a society. Why is that the case? Well, I mean, there certainly are social norms that have changed the taboo nature of getting divorced, right? So if you came from a religious background whereby, you know, you, you're not supposed to ever get divorced, it's for better or worse, then already that removes that option or it makes it a lot less likely for you to instantiate our breaking apart and divorcing. So there's a bit of that element. That said, I, I think that I, I can't, I mean, I, this is speculative, but I suspect that, for example, if you take arranged marriages, uh, I don't know if on average they have a lower divorce rate, but there what you're doing is you're subcontracting the choice of your mate to third parties. In those cases, it's your parents. And your parents given their wisdom and you know greater life experience, are able to focus on the attributes that on average are more likely to be the important ones in choosing an ideal mate. And this is why, for example, I warn against, you know, oftentimes we make a decision that this is my life partner based on the first stage of love, where we get the butterfly in our in our stomach and our our fingers tingle because we're neuroanatomically, we're at that stage of love-lust, but that is not, cannot be something that you can expect 20, 30 years into the marriage. That doesn't mean that you're not going to find your partner sexually attractive and so on. Hopefully you will, but those, you know, you go through different stages in your relationship. Later it becomes contentment. I just, I just love to be around this person. They make me feel comfortable and safe. I know I can trust them and so on. So I, I wonder speculatively whether in today's fast-paced world, in, in line with your previous question about you know flipping through the apps, whether we've lost our ability to focus on the most fundamentally important attributes when choosing proper mate. And if, if that's true, then obviously that's going to result in a greater divorce rate because I'm not focusing on the best predictors of what constitutes the likelihood of a long-term marriage. So one of the things I talk about in the book that is probably the biggest predictor of the likelihood of us staying together or not. And here there are two evolutionary maxims that are pitted against each other. There is the opposites attract maxim, and then there is the birds of a feather flock together maxim. It turns out that overwhelmingly, if what you're trying to maxim maximize is the long-term success of your relationship, in other words, not getting divorced and so on and being happy in the union, then it's overwhelmingly the birds of a feather flock together maxim that is operative. And so the question becomes, but flocking on which feathers? And here we're not talking about we have to have the same eye color or the same hair color, but we have to have the fundamentally same values, life mindsets, belief systems. If we don't have those, that doesn't guarantee that we'll be divorced, but boy, is it statistically increasing the likelihood of us failing. So example, I may be a very, very religious person whereby every single element of my life is centered around my faith. You may be someone who's a caustic atheist. Well, it's not going to take a fancy evolutionary psychologist to tell you you're probably starting on the wrong foot. Now, 
you might overcome it. It's possible. But statistically speaking, that's not a good start. And so I think that while none of the prescriptions that I offer in the book are guarantees, they're statistical arguments. If you implement this, you're statistically more likely to achieve goal A, B, or C, right? Uh, If you don't smoke, you statistically reduce your chance of lung cancer, even though many non-smokers contract lung cancer, right? And so birds of a feather flock together is something that every listener who's looking for a mate should keep in mind. There's a separate but related consideration that I've heard you mention before. I think it was on that anonymous Joe Rogan podcast. So you might need to you might need to say it here so more people can actually hear it. Uh, and that is the the longitudinal mating value yes. of a prospective mate. Explain that to me. Yes, and, and you know when I first espoused or you know proposed that theory on Joe Rogan's show, which I I also covered in 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 the current happiness book, you can't imagine how many people wrote to me saying that they wanted to collaborate on a research project to actually test those ideas. And I'll, I'll explain in a second. And I'm quite regretful that I haven't done it yet. So thank you for triggering my regret. So the theory that I proposed works as follows. And actually, it you're, you're, you're exactly right that it perf- it's a perfect segue from birds of a feather flock together. In this case, the feathers that we're trying to assort is our overall mate value. So let's Imagine that each of us walks around with a number that's floating around us on a scale of zero to 100. Zero, I'm the least attractive mating prospect possible. 100, I'm the most attractive. Attractive, I don't mean just in a physical sense. I mean, in the amalgamation of all the attributes that define my mate value, that's what I mean. Okay. So if I am a 90, it really makes sense that I assort with a partner that also has roughly that same mating value. And 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 that makes sense. So we're assorting on mating value. Yes, we all want to mate with the 100. The problem is that if I'm scoring at 40, I could never hope to get the 100. Therefore, I end up assorting with someone who's roughly of the same mating value. So now take a young couple who gets married out of high school. They both have a very high, within that ecosystem, within that life stage, they're both off the charts high. He's the star quarterback. She is the homecoming queen. She's the gorgeous cheerleader. I'm taking the stereotypical kind of tropes. And of course, it makes sense that Johnny and Linda would be the homecoming king and queen because they're the hottest couple in high school and they get married. Fast forward 12 years later, Johnny's gotten fat. Johnny's lost his hair. Johnny is an unemployed mechanic who plays video games all day. Linda, on the other hand, is now doing her neurosurgery residency. Oh, there's a lot of really attractive, well-spoken, worldly physicians around, some of whom are, are physically attractive and have a wonderful vocabulary and are really uh, ambitious. Now, Linda's mating value from wherever it was has gone on an ascendancy, whereas Johnny's is is gone on a precipitous downfall so that when they first started, they both had assortative mating values. Now they're 50 points apart. While there is no greater threat to the union, in my view, than that inequity. So I argue when I propose that theory that the stability of a marriage is going to largely depend on us pursuing that assortative mating value through the, throughout all of our life. If we don't, it's going to be problems. 
Yeah, I thought it was fascinating because I think most people instinctively look at the here and the now as opposed to thinking, well, which is not easy, thinking about that, that future lens. The, the second big life decision, which is the choice of career, and I want to return to that theme of really seismic historical changes in a short period of time. The big one around work is obviously the changes that have happened as a result of COVID and particularly hybrid working. How do you think that plays into to this story, some of those changes that we've seen in the corporate world in the last three or four years? Right. Look, there, there is an element. We, we are a social species. We have a desperate need to connect. Yes, you and I are right now are able to look in each other's eyes to get a sense of the nonverbal cues. If I say something that is interesting or idiotic, I can read it in your in your face. But nothing could replace it happening face to face. We need that. So even during the the you know the draconian measures during COVID, if I was able to meet up with a close friend and we'd go on these walk and talks, I actually mentioned that briefly in the book, how invigorating those are. Not only they're invigorating because we're walking, therefore we're exercising, but we're doing it face to face. It wasn't through a Zoom talk. I, I get to metaphorically smell you. I, you're there. It's tactile. You're, I see you. I feel you. Maybe we even touch each other. We know that oxytocin is released through warm embraces and hugging and so on. And so I think there is that element that is lost when we go into remote world. Uh, look, it's, it's, it's very easy and convenient for me when I am teaching a class. 10 minutes before the class starts, I turn on my Zoom. I don't have to face traffic. I don't have to face parking. I don't have to go downtown where the campus is, where it's all chaotic. I'm still delivering the same message, but there is something unique about you seeing me delivering it in person. And I've actually asked that of students because right, there is a convenience factor of just doing it on online. But many of them would say, yeah, but it's it's different when we hear you delivering it in person where we can exchange ideas and discuss things in person. So we have lost a bit of that. Like most things, there are pros and cons. But I think the more general question, irrespective of the COVID realities that were imposed on us and so on, what are, if I can answer, what are some fundamental markers that could increase the likelihood of my occupational happiness? Can I share these with you? Please. Yeah. So I argue basically that there are two key ones. Number one, anything that allows me to instantiate my creative impulse by definition is going to increase purpose and meaning of my job. Because just immersing myself in the creative process by definition does that, right? You, 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 it's very hard to get into a flow state if you're not creating something. So yes, we need insurance adjusters and any honest job has, has dignity. So I'm not denigrating anybody. And we need janitors and we need bus drivers and we need corrections officers. But that's probably not something that the insurance adjuster does, wakes up in the morning, rubs their hand and goes, thank God I found my passion in life. And insurance adjusting is, is where it's at. They do their job. They do it honestly. They do it with dignity. That's great. They, they put food on the table. That's great. But they're not creating. The chef, the architect, the stand-up comic, the podcaster, the professor and author, while they're working in completely different mediums and domains, what they share in common is that they're each creating something that heretofore had not existed until they came along and created it. And that just provides you with purpose and meaning. Now, I understand the reality that 
Not everybody can do that. There's just pragmatic realities. I need to put food on the table. Well, then in that case, I would say if you can't instantiate your creative impulse on your job, in your job, which would be you won the lottery, then you could do it in your personal choices. Well, you are a bus driver, but you've always been interested in the medium of ceramics. Well, why don't you, instead of watching television for the four hours after you come home from your long shift as a bus driver, sign up for that adult lifelong learning ceramics class at your local visual arts center. And it's only going to be an hour and a half, but boy, are you going to be invigorated and your life is going to be more enriched and meaningful if you instantiate your creative impulse. So that would be the first metric. The second metric is any profession, in my view, that allows you to have maximal temporal freedom is one that's going to, all other things equal, make you happy. So I work very, very hard. I I can pull 16-hour days. But I never feel stressed as much as if my entire day is already booked, my, fi- my, my fate is sealed. Eight to nine, departmental meeting. Nine to 11, I'm teaching a course. 11 to 12, I'm meeting with the dean. That gives me what I call scheduling asphyxia, right? Because what makes me happy is to be able to be, in French, you say flaneur. I just vagabond around. Now I'm talking to Will on the show. Next, I'll go sit at a cafe for two hours and I'll think about some stuff and I'll write some notes. Then I'll come home and exercise for an hour. Then I'll go off and do something else that's meaningful and very stressful. But I am the master of my time. And that gives me a great sense of you know, personal freedom. Now contrast that to the factory worker who doesn't even have the dignity of deciding when they can use the restroom because it is mandated at 10.15, you could take a break till 10.30. Well, all other things equal, I think the former is going to lead more to more happiness. So, and by the way, there's great research by a gentleman, by, by many people, but the, the most famous example of which is a social epidemiologist uh, from England called, uh, I think, in, I mean, in French, you would pronounce Marmot, but I think the English would be Marmot. He looked at the cortisol levels of people in a hierarchy as a function of where they are on the hierarchy. And the, the lower you are, the higher your cortisol level. Now, that's, that at first seems surprising because you would think that the person who, the CEO faces the most amount of stress, so they should have the highest cortisol levels. But it, it is found that it's the exact opposite. By the way, it's been also demonstrated with baboons. Uh, so Robert Sapolsky has done great studies looking at the hierarchy within baboon society. And the lower you are on the rung, the higher cortisol levels. And cortisol levels is a hormonal marker of stress, right? And so the lowest rung on the organizational hierarchy to the extent that your boss tells you what to do, what time to do it at, there is absolutely no room for creativity or temporal freedom. Well, that manifests itself in my higher cortisol levels. So create and vagabond around and you'll be occupationally happy. Yeah, I love it. Uh, I have managed to think of one final question for you, for Please. you, Gad, after my previous one was stolen. It requires you to actually look forward. So, so let's ponder the world in 2050. Given everything you can see happening in the world today, do you think we will be a more or a less happy world or society wow. in 2050? Uh, okay, I, I have to be speculative here because I don't, unlike some other public intellectuals who are futurists, who can tell us things really profound, like I'm not going to do the accent, 
but I'll leave it for your listeners to decide who it is. In the future, people will really care about food. Holy shit, who could have thought of such an insight? I mean, how do you tap into such futuristic wisdom, oh God of Davos? But in any case, so I don't, I'm too epistemologically humble to pretend that I could accurately answer your question. I'll answer it using the backdrop of the Middle East, where I come from. Imagine if there was a magic pill that we can take to eradicate some of the regrettably innate tribalism that shapes human nature. Imagine if now we can unlock the Middle East, which we're starting to see some hints of, so that there is no longer all of these deep-seated hatreds between groups. So think about what the Middle East can become, given its richness of its hospitality culture, its Uh, just rich culture in general, and you open that up to the world so that there are no longer places that are difficult to visit because of all of these religious hatreds and so on. If we're able, I think, and I'm not optimistic that we can, because as I said, tribalism is an inherent part of human nature. If we can unlock the secrets to how to get rid of some of these blue team, red team coalitional thinking that we have, then I think in 2050 or in 2100, we'd be in a much better place because we would not be spending our time hating one another rather than using the richness of our diversity to make the world a better place. How is that for an answer? I think that's uh, that's a teaser potentially for about 10 more <laughs> podcasts in, in, in that answer, but we uh, we don't have, have the time. Uh, Gad, this, this has been an absolute pleasure. The sad truth about happiness is out coincidentally in Australia today for all, everyone listening in Australia. I took this book and I read it in the lobby bar of the Chelsea Hotel in New York. Sat down, I read it cover to cover. It was as close as probably I could get to a spiritual, the type oh, of spiritual experience that we uh, that we talked you about. You gave before. me goosebumps. What a what <laughs> lovely word. Thank you it so is, much. Um, I really appreciate your kind words. It's a wonderful book and you know it's one of many wonderful books you've written now. Thank you very much for, for everything that you are doing in the culture wars, in the additions that you make to intellectual debate. Uh, you, are, you are much loved around the world and for very good reason. Thank you very much for coming on Australiana. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Australiana. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review. And if you really enjoyed the show, head to spectator.com.au forward slash join. Sign up for a digital subscription today and you'll get your first month absolutely free.